it's very, very common to hear people say, I want to go to a church that encourages me. Sometimes I've heard that from people, and I'll say, what do you mean by that? I mean, what do you mean by encourage? For many, it seems to be, I want a place that I can feel better about myself. For others, they want to go to a place that it's a place of self-improvement. I'm not against self-improvement. Other people just want to be told that God loves me, and he thinks I'm awesome, and I'm special, so I feel really, really great. But when you read the Bible, it seems to mean um, that encouragement is really about growing in the grace of God, in the faith, in love and devotion to God and to his church. You see, God wants us all to be encouraged in the love of Jesus Christ. Why? Initially, so we become what the Bible calls, what Jesus called being born again. We were dead in trespasses and sin, the Apostle Paul tells us, but we have been made alive in Christ. We become what the Apostle Paul calls a new creation. And not only do we experience the love of God, but our lives and the way we live are radically changed. Now, that last part is very, very important. You see, God wants us to have a real faith, not just a said faith. So, so what, what does that mean? It means that true faith goes beyond what we say. We can say we have faith, and James is going to really hammer us down on that over his letter that he's written here. But we want to not just have a said faith, we say we have faith, we want to demonstrate a real faith in the way that we live our lives. Uh, we, could we could say this way, that accepting the word of God and the receiving of salvation, what do we mean by that? The forgiveness of sins and eternal life includes a brand new way of living. We are new. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, the scripture says. And so the title of our message tonight is Following Jesus to Freedom. Following Jesus to Freedom. I want to begin with a very popular two verses in the book of Philippians that the Apostle Paul wrote after Jesus ascended into heaven. And he said this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, work out the salvation that you already have. Now, you think, oh, does that mean that I, you know, maybe I trust in Jesus, that's how I become a Christian? I've heard you say that before, Pastor Jim. I trust in Jesus and then I'm on my own. No, 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 not at all. We have a willingness or a personal responsibility to be willing to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So you and I are not alone in this. God is with us in this. And so like the Apostle Paul, James wants us to enter into salvation and blessing 
here and now, and the way we do that, when we say that God is at work in us, the way we do that is we acknowledge that God wants us to live under the authority of the Word of God. Now, this is a challenge to the church today. Big challenge, because it's more than just doing good things. There's a lot of people who will write books on how to grow churches, and they just say, just invite people over to do good things. It used to be invite them over to movies and events and stuff like that, and now they're saying, well, the next generation is not so focused on that. They just want to come in and they just want to do uh, good things. But it's also, in addition, the way you live is, it is doing good things, and it is you know, having faith. But another thing that's very, very important that seems to sort of been pushed to the side is eliminating immorality. A lot of people think that, well, why is God so hung up on immorality? And it really comes down to, it's kind of an interesting thing. I'm, I'm hoping one of these years, uh, should the Lord can, uh, you know, tarry and continue and not come back and, and give me many more years, to do just a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And, and the Ten Commandments calls us to moral purity and it calls us to loyalty to God. Why? Because God doesn't want us to have fun? No. Because God wants us to be like him, and God is loyal to us. And so God wants to teach us loyalty. And so in a hyper-information and entertainment age, it's easy to be a passive listener to what God says and to be lax in matters of morality. It's also easy to be lax in matters of doing good things for people. Now, there, there's, a, there's a tension. Jonah 2.9, kind of like right in the middle of your Bible, says that salvation is of the Lord. So is it of you? Nope. Is it of me? Nope. Salvation is of the Lord, but that gift of salvation, and salvation is a gift, that salvation comes with personal responsibility to live for the Lord. So let's just say I gave you a car. Some of you are like, where's the keys, Pastor Jim? I'll take the car. But if I gave you a car, you would still have a personal responsibility in the operation of that vehicle. So God gives us salvation, but he also gives us a personal responsibility in how to live but he also promises, as we just read in Philippians, that he is at work in us to help us live that life. So whether you want to call it religion or you want to call it a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not just about what we know about God, nor is it about what we do for God it's really the, sort of the combination of those things. So knowing God, how does that start? That starts with turning to God and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. It comes from receiving the word of God. It comes from studying the word of God as we begin to live out this life that God has given to us. And as we study the word of God, as we, as we dig deep into the word of God, the word of God digs us deep in him. And that begins to change our character. It's a lifelong process and the way that we live our lives. And so James is teaching us that followers of Jesus must respond to the word of God 
with obedient listening, careful speech, action, and humility. Those are some of the things that he's going to take us through tonight. So we left off in, chapter, in verse 18 last time. And verse 18 had a very interesting terminology in it. It talked about the word of truth, the word of truth. So he's moving us from the word of truth to verse 19. Sometimes those spaces in your Bible that, that sort of break up the passages, sometimes they're very helpful. Sometimes they're not as helpful as we might uh, think they could be. And then verse 19, talking about the word of truth, verse 19 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Some versions say quick to hear. Now, let's just stop for a second. Hear who? Hear who? That's, the, that's an important question. Slow to speak, so we're quick to hear, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Many of your versions say anger. So James opens this section that we're beginning tonight with one sentence that sort of states his goals and what he is going to teach us as we go along. Now, this is what we would call a, a big apostolic command with a touch of love. You know how you just say, you know, I love this with maybe like you like your ice cream with some whipped cream and sprinkles on the top or something like that. It's kind of like that. He just lays out this thing, but he, but he, but he covers it with this, my beloved brethren. So now we enter into a Bible scholar debate. There is a debate, and it's really not a Bible scholar debate. It's mainly a debate between people who would say they're Bible scholars or who are recognized Bible scholars and people who are not. It's about being swift or quick to hear. Literally, it kind of means hurry up and listen. Make sure you're in a hurry to listen. So the debate is this. Is James addressing listening to God or the word of truth from verse 18 or the interpersonal issues we have with one another in the church? Now, you might be surprised because you've probably heard this if you've been around the church for any length of time. You've probably heard this before. But most Bible scholars agree that it involves listening to the word of God not other people. But, rather than take sides, we'll try and consider both. If we want to receive the Word of God, now if you're watching on a Wednesday night, and you're not watching television, you're watching a Bible study, I can assume that you want to receive the Word of God. If you want to, and I want to receive the Word of God, we must be ready, willing, and available to listen to what God, what God says. Many you know, scholars have taught over the years that the best way actually to come to the Bible is to come to it as an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who says, I don't know. And, and while we might say, I do believe in God, an agnostic, an agnostic would say, I don't know if God exists, we come to the Bible saying, I'm not going to pretend like I know what this says, I'm going to put it out of my mind, and I'm going to ask God to teach me 
what he wants me to know from this passage. In, in effect, you're coming to the passage saying, some of you re- heard that verse, you go, oh, I got this one, get to the next verse, Pastor Jim. And, and, and you're coming to it saying, I don't know what it means, and I want to hear God out. I'm going to rush to listen to what God says. For example, most people gloss over this verse. And the reason they gloss over this verse is they think that it's about people. I'm not saying it's not, but it's more important that we are quick to listen to God. Now, he says, be slow to speak. Notice he didn't say, don't speak. He said, be slow to speak. Hear the information, process it, and then begin to speak. So rather, there seems to be a delay in speaking. Whether it's people, I'm going to hear people out, I'm going to hear what they have to say. Uh, you know, you'll notice a lot of times if you ever go to a counselor or something like that, you're speaking and they're writing. You're like, what are they doing? Well, they're taking notes about what you said, but a lot of times they're also writing questions. They want to they listen to you, they want to hear you out but then they also want to follow up with things that are going to help clarify what it is that you're saying. So it's listening to people very carefully and then being slow to speak to them. But it's the same thing. It's listening to God very carefully and then being slow for God to speak. Now, sometimes people are talking to you and you're saying to God, God, Let me hear what they're saying and let me be slow to speak to what they're saying because I want to represent you well. Now, both of these are consistent with Jewish wisdom teaching. In Jewish wisdom teaching, James was a Jew as the apostles were, and wisdom teaches careful and studious listening. Proverbs are full of this kind of stuff and slow speech. So you're carefully listening to the speaker, no matter who it is, and then you are slow to speak. The closing point is to be slow to wrath or to be slow to anger. I cannot, cannot, cannot overemphasize how important this is for all of us. On the one hand, let's start actually with the easiest part. Outbursts of anger towards people. We'll call that temporary amnesia from the Word of God. (laughs) I just temporarily lost my brain. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And guess what? I just showed it to my kids. (laughs) I, I I I just lost my temper and it was bad. And we often, when we have that amnesia, we often regret what we said. Now, Many psychologists really struggle with the solution to that. I mean, they just don't really know what to do with that. Yet the Word of God teaches that the Word itself has the power to overcome our misplaced emotions. The Word of God says it can, personalizes it, it can overcome those misplaced emotions. But on the other hand, and this is where I want to tell you it's very, very important, long-term, deep-seated anger, even if you're calm about it, 
is poison to your soul, is poison to your heart. And here's the effect that it has. It numbs us to the word of God. We just don't hear what God is saying. See, this type of anger will close our, our minds to the truth of the word of God and also all, often will close our minds to other people. When, when you have deep-seated anger and, and it begins to just fester inside of you, it often settles into something that can overtake control of your heart. It can overtake control of your mind. Then at that point, whether we know it or not, I know this is going to seem like a radical statement. At that point, we're not even getting along with God. Because our hearts are just filled with ugliness instead of our heart being filled with the things of God. And we might be mad at someone else, but ultimately we're also mad at God's sovereignty for allowing that into our lives. We're not hearing him. We are listening to our anger instead of listening to the Lord. We are inattentive to the word of God. We could sit in church 52 Sundays a year and we're inattentive to the word of God. We read it, but we don't hear it. Now, why would James say this? Why would James say this? Well, remember this when we're reading New Testament letters. We've said this before, but I think it's something that always bears repeating. A lot of times, the letters are written to groups of people. This was for a groups of churches that were dispersed because they had suffered persecution and probably poverty in Jerusalem. And so they're writing letters basically a lot of times in response to letters that were sent to them or reports that were brought to them. So the people who are getting the letter understand the problems that are going on. They're not like, what in the world is he talking about? So we have to put together the clues. We have to be Bible detectives, if you will. So let's just go over a couple possibilities. In chapter 3, we're going to see that too many of the people in their church, those churches wanted to be teachers. Too many of them. They, God had not picked them or chosen them to be teachers, had not given them the gift of teaching. Now, here's the thing about being a gift of teaching. It's not just being a good talker. You know, every time I tell people I'm Irish, every time I tell people my family, you know, when I first started pastoring, they'll be go, oh, you'll be good at pastoring. You got the gift of the gab. That's not what that is. The gift of teaching is really, really rooted in the gift of studying. The apostles in Acts 6 said, we want to dedicate ourselves to the word of God and prayer. It's rooted in the gift of studying. So you, God has gifted you to study and then to make the word of God plain to people Simple, not simplistic, simple to take what, that which seems difficult and make it easy to understand. And James is saying, here's a big problem that you have. Too many of you people want to be that. So what happens if, you, if that's not your gift? You are, you are not slow to listen. You think you got it. And you're out there blurting it out. And so that could be one of the problems that they're having in, in this church um, 
Yet apparently what happens with that is there is, uh, uh, among people who are too quick to rush to be teachers, uh, oh, I don't even know how to say this in a nice way, there is an over-opinionated cockiness because they have not spent a lot of time with God absorbing his word. And then what happens is they lack the attention to detail that the word of God has. Now, can we learn those things over time? Yes, but don't rush to it. Don't, don't rush to it. In, in chapter 4, we come across another problem where, where he talks about uh, because of anger, personal ambition and desire seem to be overtaking people. And you know what happens when personal ambition and desire takes over people? There seems to be, in, in, in chapter 4, some half-truths in their speech. And that's why he's saying, be really slow to speak, because make sure you got your facts straight. Anger. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, it's righteous anger. Very little bit of our anger is righteous. It really is, right? If it's about you, it's almost never righteous, right? And so anger, which is almost never righteous, leads to unrighteousness. And what does unrighteousness lead to? Unrighteousness leads to self-importance, and unrighteousness leads to lies. We're also going to see, uh, there's uh, next week, Lord willing, a favoritism to the wealthy. And, and something that many people show in their own self-interest. They show favoritism to the wealthy, and the wealthy don't even realize half the time they just want something from you. And so he's going to talk about that as well. So let's look now, after he sort of gave us that intro statement, let's look at more carefully at the commands. He starts with verse 20. For, we say often in the Bible that is kind of similar to a lot of times our word because, and connects it to verse 19, the wrath of man or the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, very important. We have to get a, a little bit Bible geeky here, so just pay attention to us. Real, this is very, very important because you're going to hear people say the Bible is full of contradictions. And a lot of people did not want James in the Bible. The big arguments over what went into the final Bible was James and Second Peter. And a lot of people didn't want James in the Bible. And a lot of people think, think, only about James, and other people discount the book of James because they don't understand a term we use in uh, hermeneutics. If you know what hermeneutics is, it's the art and science of biblical interpretation. But let's just say they don't understand a term we use in Bible study called progressive revelation. What, what is progressive revelation? That means that God makes things more clear over time as you go through the Bible. So, so this past Sunday, somebody walked up to me after service and said, um, you went from Abraham rescuing Lot to Jesus rescuing us. How do you do that? And I go, because I know the end of the story. <laughs> Abraham didn't. Other people in the Bible don't. 
So let's keep that in the back of our mind as God teaches us as we go along, makes things more clear over time. If we ignore this in the book of James, we are going to be be very prone and we can very easily get a lot of James wrong or think when you go read the Apostle Paul, they seem to contradict one another, but they don't. So, So how can we think this through? James's letter is written to a Jewish audience. The Apostle Paul primarily wrote to non-Jewish audiences, but there were Jews in the congregations where they were being read. But let's look at the timing. Remember we said that of the New Testament letters, James is probably either first or second. And so James wrote his letter, okay, before the massively theological letters of the Apostle Paul. James, more practical. Peter, more simple. Peter even said, Paul, man, that brother is deep. He's even, he confuses me. That makes me feel good. When an apostle says another apostle's writing confuses him, I'm like, well, then I don't feel like such a dummy all the time. And so, so James wrote before these massive theological letters of the Apostle Paul, which were progressively revealed to the Apostle Paul. And so James's reference is not the Apostle Paul. James's reference is what? The Old Testament, the influence of wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is huge in his writing. And you know who also he was influenced by? His big brother, Jesus because he heard Jesus preach. So one of the key themes of the Old Testament is an expression that he uses in verse 19, the righteousness of God. Again, we got to geek out a little bit to make sure we get this right. The Apostle Paul uses the term righteousness of God to show us why we cannot produce the righteousness, the perfect righteousness that God requires ourselves to get to heaven. We cannot do it. For the Apostle Paul, it was the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God gives to us when we put our trust in Jesus and we receive that righteousness. Think of being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ By grace, you didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't do anything to earn it. We receive it through faith, through putting our trust in Jesus. So it is, again, the righteousness of Jesus that we must be clothed in to get into heaven. Think of a a guy on the moon in a spacesuit. You can't survive on the moon without the spacesuit. You're not going to get into heaven when all the accounts are settled, when all the books are open. You and I, we will not get into heaven unless we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We don't get that by anything that we do. We get it because of what he did. We receive it by faith. That is the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And then that changes the way we live. But James uses the term, the righteousness of God, in a very different sense. He doesn't use it in what we call a Pauline, an Apostle Paul revelation sense. 
he uses it in the sense in which it is used in the Old Testament. In other words, this term, the righteousness of God, is, is the sense of living a life that is pleasing to God. Or, as one version says, the righteous life that God desires. Now, in many ways, when we went through the Sermon on the Mount here a couple years back, Jesus said to the people that you have to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the most meticulous religious guys around. Now, since we know the end of the story, we know Paul's theology, we know the theology of Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, we know that a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees is the perfect righteousness of Jesus that we are clothed in. But when they were listening to it, they didn't know anything about that. The cross hadn't happened. The resurrection hadn't happened. The apostles hadn't gone out uh, like they did in the book of Acts, planting in churches and stuff like that. So what were they thinking of? They were thinking, Jesus is saying, you have to have a righteousness. You have to have a life that pleases God to get to heaven that is greater than the Pharisees have, than the religious leaders have. <laughs> the people would be like, what is he talking about? But that's a lot of times. Listen, a lot of times I know you have a lot of questions and, and, and you want to know these things. God wants you to have these questions because he wants to lead you to the place where your faith and your trust is in him, where you go, I couldn't possibly do this. You know, when people tell me, I can't live this Christian life that you talk about, Pastor Jim. I am not a follower of Jesus yet. They meet me in the back of the church. I can't live this life. You know what I say to them? You, my friend, are not far from the kingdom because you're, nobody can live this life. So what's James' point? That human anger even when you're hurt. I know it's an excuse we want to use a lot, but human anger does not produce the behavior that is pleasing to God. He's using an Old Testament way of thinking of behavior that is pleasing to God. But I think it's also a warning. You know, a lot of people, again, they walk around, they talk about that, that they have righteous anger, but be very careful of saying that, loved ones. Because to say that you have righteous anger is to claim to speak for God. And that is something people should be very careful of. We have cavalier statements we make, like, oh, well, God told me. Oh, man, I, I, I don't really like to say that. If I read it in the Bible, say, I was reading the Bible. God said this, he told me. But a lot of times we subjectively say it to get ourselves out of a situation. It's really not a good idea. Verse 21, therefore, lay aside all filthiness. Uh, some versions say all moral filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Another version says, lay aside that evil that is so prevalent and receive with meekness, or some versions say humility, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, I want to go back and just, in the way we think of things, just, just, just think about this wording here. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and I might want to put the words in there, 
you will be able to. If you do that, he's saying, if you lay aside these things, if you lay aside the anger, if you lay aside the, the filthiness, the overflow of wickedness, you will be able to receive, you position yourself to receive with meekness or humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, this is something, again, we have to understand New Testament theology. New Testament theology talks about being saved in salvation as referring to the past, the present, and the future. We've used this illustration many times before. You are drowning in the sea. So somebody comes along and throws you a life preserver. They saved you. You don't swim. You get on the boat. The boat's heading back to the shore. You are being saved. You get on dry land. You are saved. So often the Bible talks about salvation, past, present, and future. James appears to be in his letter, while, while the apostles often talk about it in the future tense, James appears to be in uh, his letter talking about it in the present tense, on the boat. This is the being saved. This is what being saved looks like. And so the word picture he gives us here is interesting. It's like, he says, like, take off the filthy clothes. You're wearing dirty clothes. Take them off. In other words, lay aside the old ways. Lay aside the old life. And so get rid of the moral filthiness of our souls because we are now new creations in Christ. And, and the overflow of wickedness probably in the contents of anger has to do with the angry, bad attitudes that we need to throw away. And so the, the New Testament often uses the concept of putting off the old ways and putting on the new ways. What's the new way? The righteousness of Christ. Now, James is no dummy. He is not new to this thing. He knows that it's a fight against a powerful enemy. Indwelling sin is a powerful enemy, and it keeps coming and coming and coming. It is relentless. Now you say, why is it like that? Uh, part of it is because so we continue to trust God daily and fight the good fight. In order to help us, James is teaching us where to get the new clothes. You say, I want to get rid of that ugliness. I, I, I want to get rid of this, the, the, the things in my life that I know that are not pleasing to God. Where do I get rid of those things? And he tells us, receive with meekness the implanted word. That's where you get it. That's where you get the, the drive, the attitude, the desire, the motivation to get rid of those things is the implanted word. So, who implanted it? Who implanted it? Well, According to Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, uh, in the Old Testament, God did. But he didn't implant it in us. It's not like we, a lot of people think, we, well, we came out with that implanted in us. I'm not in that camp. I might be next week, but I'm not this week. And, and so God did, did, did not implant the word or his word in us just to save us, but also he implanted it, why? To take up residence in us. And so he wants to be with us. Yet, interestingly enough, the effect, remember there's God's part and our part, 
God's part is the word of God and planting the word of God, yet the effect of the word of God is tied to our humility. And in the Bible, humility is not weakness. Humility is simply this. You could define a lot of different ways. Well, I, I try to define them different every time. Humility is essentially letting God have his way with us. That's essentially what humility is. So once again, there is a personal responsibility. A real desire to change is so very important when we come to the Word of God. So if you come to the Bible and you're just, you're just madder than a hornet about everything, I wouldn't expect to get a lot out of it. it. But if you're like, God, I really want my heart to change, you'll begin to see it. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, sorry I haven't welcomed you yet. I'm welcome tonight. I'm glad that you're here with us. And the same is true for you. If you want to hear God speak and you really want God to change you, you I mean, really want God to change you, you have to be real honest with yourself. I mean, super honest with yourself. Do you really want to change? Do you really, really want it? Now, verse 22, some people think actually might be the key verse in the book of James or the letter of James. It says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So it's very interesting. Being quick to listen often leads to being quick to action. You know, a lot of the Christian, when you've been around the church long enough, people you know, there's something that needs to be done right away, and they'll be like, well, I'll pray about it. And, 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 you know, James would be like, well, listen carefully and get to it. Get to it. I'm not saying we don't pray about certain things, but sometimes we over-spiritualize it. So I love James' simplicity. Followers of Jesus should respond to the Word of God by continually listening to it and obeying it. That's what we tell people who are new to the faith. Read your Bible. Tells you to do something, do it. Like, that's it? People are like, that's it? I go, no, that's pretty much it. <laughs> right? And, and then it, we'll see later that you will be a blessed person. You see, James knows this. James knows that it's very easy to come to church and hear a message. And by the way, preachers, I'm very well aware it's very easy to come to church and preach a message. It's easy to come and hear it or preach it and actually think that you've lived it. <laughs> but that's not the case. That's not the case at all. And so in verse 22, James calls that deceiving yourselves. In other words, you can think you're right with God when you're actually not. In your head, you're right with God. But in your heart, in your hands, in your feet, you're not right with God. You're not at all. Verse 22 may be the most well-known verse in James, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And, and some people have taken this verse and said that when it says be doers of the word and not hearers only, they've actually said that hearing of the word of the Lord is not necessary. May I say no? May I say no? May I say a thousand times, no, no, no. That is completely wrong. James is all for listening and learning. You're not going to know what God wants you to do unless you listen and you learn. 
But James is not just for listening and learning. That doesn't lead to action. It's got to lead to action. You know where he got that, don't you? It's the same where I tell everybody, every week people come out, that was wonderful. Where do you get all this stuff? And I always go, I'm just ripping off Jesus, man. <laughs> that's all I'm doing. And that's where James got it. He's he, he just ripping off Jesus. You see, Jesus taught that the grace of God reached down to us through him. That was his basic message. And when we understand that, and we see him dying on the cross instead of us, the only natural response is to put our trust in him and then to respond with radical obedience. In Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 27 and 28, says this, And it happened as he, Jesus, spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. <laughs> Do you ever have something you wish you never said? <laughs> I mean, imagine meeting that lady like, are you in the Bible? Yeah, I am. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, did you, what did you say? Uh, I'm the one who said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. <laughs> People are like, what is she talking about? <laughs> but he said, oh, more than that. <laughs> More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Isn't that interesting? Verse 23, 24, he goes on, James says, For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing or looks at his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, in other words, he looks at himself in a mirror, goes away and immediately forget what kind of man he was. So he looked in the mirror, he saw himself, and walks away and forgets everything. You, you could say that the word did not affect him enough to want to change. And here James describes the person who hears the word of the Lord, reads the word of the Lord, really, it really shows him who he is. Now, some people will walk away to do what it says. I love it when I meet people outside after church and they go like, God was very clear to me. I got to go. I can't stay for coffee or anything like that. I know what I got to do and I got to go do it. And I'm always like, let me know tomorrow if you did it or not. I love that. They heard. God was clear. They know what they have to do. But this guy, he hears it. He knows what he has to do, and he just walks away. It's not that he didn't understand. This guy looks at himself in the mirror. It's not that he didn't understand. It's that he just doesn't want to do it. His, the, the conviction of the Word of God was very short-lived. He, 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 he's, he's out of the room, and he did, he's done. And this picture seems deliberately absurd. You, you look in the mirror. Just imagine this. You look in the mirror. You look at yourself. You walk away. And your cell phone rings. And somebody says, 
hey, I'm going to meet you. I know somebody you never met before. I'm going to meet you at this crowded place. What do you look like? And you go, I don't really know. I don't really know. One, one author I had read a long time ago said this, said that this guy looks at himself in the mirror and then sees a picture of a lineup of criminals and can't even pick himself out. <laughs> this has no idea what he even looks like. Sometimes people will say to us, take a look in the mirror. In other words, they're saying it's time for self-moral reflection. So perhaps James is reminding us that the scriptures are a mirror not to our face and our hair and all that, but it is a mirror to our heart and to our soul. We look in the mirror to see what's right or what's wrong. And the, and the scriptures show us our faults. But the scripture doesn't do this to put us down. The scripture does it to drive us to repentance, to drive us to, to come to God and ask for forgiveness and to, and to live for God and obtain the pre- promises of God to experience the beauty of the Lord. And so, again, the, a mirror shows us what's right and what's wrong just like the Word of God does. And as we often say, some people read the Word of God. And that's a good thing you should do. You should read the Word of God. But real followers of Jesus, let the Word read them. And then they hear what God has to say. Verse 25, I want to read it twice. Uh, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one shall be blessed in what he does. Let me go slower. But, what does that mean? Contrast, something is different. So now we're not talking about the guy who forgot himself in the mirror. We're talking about somebody completely different. But he who, number one, looks into or carefully studies the perfect law of liberty. Some versions say the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, there's some differentiation on what that means. They will, number two, and they will continue in it. Some versions say they will persevere in it and is, three, not a forgetful hearer, but, contrast, number four, a doer of the work that the word prescribes, and look at the result. This one will be blessed in what he does. So both the hearer and the doer look carefully at the perfect law of liberty or the perfect law of freedom. So, so what is that? A lot of debate of that. When I get to these things, and, I, and I just, I'm just like, well, I think it's probably just the word of God. It's probably just the good news of Jesus Christ and, and the way of life that, that God wants to empower a follower of Jesus to live. So the whole description of this person is completely in contrast with verses 23 and 24. It's completely in contrast with the person who does what they want. Notice the Lord promises the doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now, does that mean they'll be blessed here or they'll be blessed eternity, in eternity? I think 
Exactly. Yes, right. You got it. I mean, I don't see any reason why it can't, both can't be true. So you might say, okay, well, how do you, how do you obey? You, you be a doer of the word. You be a doer of the work that the word tells you to do. You continue in it or you persevere in it. Interesting, the, 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 the expression continue in it literally means you continue in its company. You, you continue to live the rest of your life in the company of the word of the Lord. So, in other words, it's like salvation is not just, you know, you read a couple verses in the morning and then you go about your day. Salvation is a life to be lived. If you will, it's your lifetime of work. You know how sometimes people are artists or something like that and they have a portfolio of work and they're like, this represents a lifetime of work. You and I have a lifetime of work, a lifetime of obeying the Lord. While many consider the word of God constraining, isn't it interesting? Constraining or restraining. Isn't it interesting that, that James calls it liberty? The, the, I mean, that's really, it's really odd. The perfect law of liberty or the perfect law of freedom. And then he sums it up at the end and says, it's a blessing to obey. This is where we have to look at, at what we think about culturally and where the Bible is in a very different place than where we are. Very different. Culturally, we think as Americans that freedom is the absence of restraints. That tends to be what we think. In other words, we want to be the people of 20, uh, verse 23 and 24, but we want to call ourselves Christian. We will say, well, I don't do that because I'm just rebellious. You know, I, I don't do that because it's not the way I'm wired. You know, we, we don't like constraints. People tell us something. Could you do this? Could you do that? Could you do this? We don't like that. And the first thing people call, that's legalism. No, it's not legalism. It's not legalism. People will say, well, that's not in the Bible. I'll be like, okay, you got kids? Yeah, I got kids. How old? I got a five-year-old. Okay, so the five-year-old cleans up its room. Do you then allow them, and it's time for bed, and you say, okay, and you turn your back, and they just throw all the, all the toys all over the place. Is that cool? No, that's not cool. It's not in the Bible. Well, obey your parents is in the Bible. Well, obey God's in the Bible. He's your father. So we... we we like the, the absence of, of restraint. We don't like to be told what to do. But in the Word of God, freedom and liberty is very, very different. Freedom and liberty in the Word of God is the presence of right restraints. It is the presence of good constraints. Why? To help you flourish. Let me give you an example. Do you think that drinking and driving is a good idea? Now, a lot of you are watching this, and you're probably thinking it doesn't. Some of you watching this have some DWIs. A lot of people in our church do. That's okay. We're new creations in Christ. But you know, some people think it's okay to drink and drive. Some people don't think it's that big a deal. But you know what? That's a very good restraint, isn't it? That's a very, very good thing. That saves lives, including, including the lives of, of you know, the people driving the car. 
and the passengers in their own car. God made us and God knows us. So he puts constraints in our lives to make us better. Like I said earlier in in, in regards to sexuality and to make us more like him. Sin and rebellion, what do they do? They push back against God. Again, when we say, well, that's just the way I am. Or, or, or I can't change. That's rebellion against God. I can't change. I hear that from people a lot. Yes, you can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. And if you don't think it's possible, you're calling God a liar. And when you call God a liar, and you're angry with him, or you've you, you got, you got a bone to pick with him. I'm not talking about the way the Bible writers were just kind of frustrated with the way life is going. But when you call God a liar, you will not experience the truth of his love. Jesus said this, John 8, 31 to 36. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, saying, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. See, that's what needs to happen. We need to go, go from being a slave to sin to being a son. And that happens when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. How do you get that freedom? You start by turning to God and confessing your failure in everything we heard tonight. Everything we heard tonight. If you think you've done all of this perfectly, I'd love to meet you and I'd love to meet the people you live with. And the people you work with. We've all sinned here. And then we ask God for forgiveness, for failing to live this out, for failing to live out the perfect law of liberty. And then we put our trust in the one who did live it out perfectly, Jesus Christ, and died on the cross for us. So we would, he took the punishment for our failure to live it out perfectly. If you will, he took our sentence for us. Then by the grace of God, the greatest miracle of all takes place. We become, we turn, we turn to God, we ask his forgiveness, we put our trust in Jesus, we become a new creation in Christ, and then miracle of miracles, the book of Galatians tells us that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is sent into our hearts, and God implants the word in you. And God will continue as you seek him to implant the word in you and you will experience new life in Christ. You say, how can I know it's true, Pastor Jim? How can I know it's true? It's true because it shows. It's true because you change, not everything all at once, but you are changing And you persevere, even in the midst of great disappointment. And you realize that all along, you've been working out your salvation with fear and trembling because God was at work with you. And Jesus was leading you 
to freedom, to where he's ultimately going to take you when he takes you home. Well, let's pray.